In the 20th century, 21st century, the patriarchy, I feel, has combined also with market capitalism to create some um, particularly poor models of cities that do not work very well for women or for anyone, for that matter. Welcome to The Green Urbanist, a podcast for urbanists fighting climate change. I'm Ross. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Darina Pajani, who is a senior lecturer at the University of Queensland in Australia. Um, in urban planning and she has a lot of experience in the urban planning and urban design fields both in practice and as an academic and she's um, studied um, studied the topic in, in the global north and global south. Um, her latest book is called Trophy Cities, A Feminist Perspective on New Capitals and that's the topic we're talking about today which is about taking a feminist or an eco-feminist approach to looking at urban design uh, we look at it in this episode through the lens of new capital cities, uh, capital cities that were, were designed and built from scratch for countries. Uh, but really, there are principles in here for all kinds of, of urban design, small and large scale developments. Why are we talking about feminism? That's a, <laughs> that's a term that maybe makes people feel a little bit uh, unwary or not really sure what we're going to get into here. Um, it's not about bashing men. Uh, Darina makes a really good um, summary of, of, of her perspective on feminism here. To me, a matriarch is a situation where um, there is equality in society, there is equality between genders, all genders, and there is also economic equality because one cannot really have a perfect matriarchy the way I envision it if there are social inequalities there. I mean, if there are rich women at the top and poor men at the bottom, I don't see where the gain is. I see that as um, just the patriarchy with another name. So this is um, a really interesting perspective that obviously you don't get to hear much in mainstream discussions about urban design and planning. Just on a personal note, um, I've now actually gone back to education myself. Um, I'm studying part-time for an MSc master's degree in sustainability and ecology at the Centre for Alternative Technology in Wales. Um, so I'm doing that part-time, I'm working part-time, I'm doing this podcast, I'm doing various other things. So bear with me over the next you know, year or two if sometimes episodes are late, if there's gaps between episodes, or if I'm recording these introductions as I am now, a bit hastily uh, and without much of a script, just to get, get, get it out. Um, but yeah, we, we'll, uh, we'll definitely still be keeping the uh, podcast going and I'm still recording lots of interesting conversations with people. Okay, enjoy the conversation. So thank you so much, Darina, for joining me on the Green Urbanist podcast. It's, uh, it's really good to have you. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Um, please, can you just introduce yourself? 
I am a lecturer and researcher in urban planning. I work at the University of Queensland in Australia, but uh, that's not where I'm originally from. I come from Albania, a little country um, on the Adriatic in the Balkan Peninsula. And I'm here because I've written a book on new capital cities, cities that have been master planned to be capitals in the 20th century and the 21st century. Thank you. Um, What's your background? Are you a geographer or a planner? I'm an urban planner and I consider myself a physical planner to be more specific. This is the most traditional branch of urban planning uh, and my research covers a variety of aspects. I do a lot around sustainable urban transport. I care a lot about urban aesthetics, urban design, and I'm also involved in projects on urban housing, especially housing for groups that are in more vulnerable positions and as well as informal housing in the global south. Okay, great. So we're, we wanted to talk today because you have a new book um, out, which is called Trophy Cities, um, which is really, really good. And thanks for sending me a copy. It's, um, I'm really enjoying it. Um, can you tell us what is the premise of that book? Why did you write it? Well, I myself come from a new capital city. The capital of Albania, Tirana, is a new city. Uh, it didn't become capital until the 1920s. It was just large village before then. So I have personal experience in the topic. And at some point in my life, I became a US citizen. And the United States um, also have a purpose-built capital, Washington, D.C. I did not include that in the book because it's an earlier master planned capital. And I don't did not include um Albania's capital, because I've written so much about it already. (laughs) But I did include in the book Canberra, because the country um, I live in now uh, also has a master planned capital. So once I saw Canberra, I thought, this is a really strange city. What about (laughs) other capitals, new capitals? Are they as strange or are they any better. And so I decided to research the topic in depth. And I went around the world, I did seven case studies in total in uh, various continents. And I found out that, yes, unfortunately, most new capitals are as strange as Canberra. <laughs> so the, 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 the under uh, or the sub subline of your book is a, a feminist perspective on new capitals. Um, what, what, where did that come from and why, why is that the, the approach you've taken? Well, after I looked at these cities and I saw how unusual they were, they, none of them could be called a real city, so to speak. So it got me thinking, why should that be so? What are um, these failures due to? And I kept thinking, does it does this have to do with race? Because race gets blamed for a lot of things nowadays, right? But failures were evident in countries with uh, white majorities, with black majorities, with Asian majorities. So I didn't think really it had to do with race. And then I thought about religion. But then again, um, kept new capitals 
are not good, whether um, the nation has adopted Christianity or Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or any any variety in between. And then I thought, well, does it have to do with the governance system? Is it that um, dictatorships create worse cities and democracies create better cities? And that, that was not the case either. So I kept looking at all these Factories, is it wealthy countries versus poorer countries? No, that wasn't the case either. And then um, it dawned on me that the thread that connected all the cities was the patriarchy. So all of them have been created under patriarchal systems, and that's um, what has created all of these failures. And to be clear, patriarchy has been a mainstay for human societies for centuries. So we have um, gems out there like Venice in Italy, Varanasi in India, and those were created under patriarchal systems for sure. But in the 20th century, in 21st century, the patriarchy, I feel, has combined also with market capitalism to create some um, particularly poor models of cities mm. that do not w- work very, very well for women or for anyone, for that matter. So it's it's something about planning a city from scratch that is sort of <laughs> incredibly difficult to get right. And it seems like we have far more poor examples than we have good examples. I guess exactly. it's not unique to, to capital cities. No, no. New cities are... Um, tough to crack to to get them right and one big problem has been that most designs have been imposed top down on populations whether they wanted those cities or not a much better approach would be to co-create cities just get together with the local population or a future population that might live in a place and just get to the drawing board and ask people what they really want out of their city as opposed to um, some star designer, star architect uh, coming in often from abroad. That's been the case in the new capitals that I've studied and uh, creating some grand master plan often with um, some um, parade ground in the center for displays of state power uh, that's not the kind of thing we need in the 21st century for sure in fact i may even question whether we need new capitals and new cities Um, existing cities have a um, fair amount of problems so why not concentrate scarce resources in solving existing problems rather than um, going and sort of attacking the wilderness while nature somewhere else yeah i think i think that that you're right that, that it is still an ongoing issue isn't it because in i mean the most high profile one i've seen recently is uh the the new capital of indonesia moving from uh jakarta where it is now which is a a mega city with with lots of problems not least because it's it's sinking and while sea levels are rising so it's under um huge threat of of uh of flooding um, and a lot, a lot of the city basically disappearing underwater. Um, but it seems like the government is sort of picking up and just moving into the inland into the rainforest. And, you know, it's unclear what happens to all the people who get left behind when you do that. Exactly. All the people that get left behind, and it will be the majority of people that currently live in Jakarta, the new capital, um, which will be created in um, 
in Borneo, the Indonesian part of Borneo, will only hold maybe 1 million people. But Jakarta, mm-hmm. the metro region, is 30 million and counting. Wow. So the new capital won't really make a dent there. So what will happen to, to those people? And then the other question is, what will happen to the orangutans that now live in mm. the rainforest? Um, why do we need to make life better for humans while making it worse for other species? Why do we have this kind of mentality that nature should be dominated? Humans are better than other animals and better than plants. Um, I see that as problematic and I also see it as a reflection of the patriarchy in city building, right? This understanding of um, relationships as as hierarchies where one thing Mm -hmm. is better than the other rather than all things being equal as in men being better or stronger than women humans being better or stronger than other animal species and so on and so forth um let's go back a bit to your to your case studies and let's talk a little bit about i guess what are some of the the common issues that you found across them um, because they are all over the world and, and in very different contexts. So it's interesting to see that you found <laughs> similar issues with, with all of them. Yeah, so none of them, I mean, to connect it to my uh, feminist theme, my feminist perspective. So none of these cities really made gender the centerpiece of design. Um, in some cases, for example, in Chandigarh and in Brasilia, which are mid-century, mid-20th century type of cities, there was this notion that we want to create um, a more egalitarian city. There were all these socialist ideas thrown around in those countries at the time. But none of the cities ever said that oh, this will be a gender egalitarian new city. And new capitals are the seat of government, right? So... There were all these government bureaucracies that were being moved into these new cities. And those bureaucracies in pretty much all cases have huge gender imbalances. So nowhere did um, the fathers, and when I say the fathers, I mean, I say it on purpose because it was usually male politicians and male designers. So the fathers of these new cities never said that, okay, now we'll have equality in government and then have that equality being reflected in city space. We do have the case of Sejong, which is the new administrative capital of South Korea. Seoul remains the um, sort of real spiritual capital of the country, but um, most of the government has moved to Sejong already, which not a lot of people know. And in that case, so that's the newest case study I include in the book. Uh, In that case, the city makers said that they did want to make this new capital of paradise for women, but what they really meant, if we look at the results, what they really meant is make a city that's good for mothers and housewives, not necessarily mm. for working women. Even their gender imbalances in the workplace, and the workplace is mostly government in that con- context, so mm. imbalances are huge. Wow, yeah, okay. So it's it's it really comes down from the pers- perspective level of the either conscious or unconscious uh, bias that you know women are are somehow separate to men and and you know playing different roles exactly that's that's exactly my definition of um the patriarchy i mean it's not simply the fact that women get paid less in the workplace we know that they do and women um still have um 
different responsibilities to men in the workplace and in the family. So we know all of that. But my definition is broader and sort of more metaphorical, so to speak. Um, the way mm. I see it is whole nations are conceived as patriarchies in the sense that there are these hierarchies in the nation with a male president or prime minister or monarch, uh, premier at the top, and then all the levels farther down. So just the way the family is conceived as a patriarchy with the father at the top and then the mother kind of subservient to the father and the children uh, underneath mother and father. So our family structure is um, a pyramid. That's how we have created our government structures. We reflect it. That's set up um, in the in the very states that govern us. So that's mm -hmm. why I talk about patriarchy a lot in the book. It's not just the urban space, but is our government system. What what were and what are I suppose cap these new capitals trying to achieve? I think that. Um, in many cases, they have been little more than vanity projects uh, okay. for a particular leader or a particular uh, government in an area. In an era, in some cases, we see this very, very clearly. For example, in Nur Sultan, the new capital of Kazakhstan, there is the imprint of the previous um, president, the previous um, Kazakhstan president, who was an elected president, but he governed for 30 years. He kept winning elections uh, with very, very high vote landslide elections. So in that case, we very clearly see his imprint all over the city. Mm. In fact, there are also these sort of urban myths created uh, about different buildings in the city. Supposedly, the shape of the building came to him. He just sketched it quickly on... Um, tissue and then the architect took that uh, little sketch and developed it in a whole building so uh, <laughs> there are these yeah <laughs> i don't know how believable these sorts of uh, myths are but i guess you need to have some kind of creation myth right if you're engaging in some big project <laughs> and in other cases we don't see a particular individual being so connected to the city but there is a government um, that has pushed for a project. For example, in Naypyidaw, the capital of um, Myanmar, Burma, and Abuja, the new capital of Nigeria, uh, these were created by military juntas, pretty much. So mm. um, they were military projects, and the military, we know it's a very male-dominated environment, so that's definitely reflected in the urban spaces of those cities. For example, in Nepido, even the housing for the bureaucrats is color-coded according to rank in the government mm. bureaucracy. So that's a very military conception of, of a city, right? And in Abuja, the president's um, villa where the president lives but also holds a lot of the functions. I haven't seen this with my own eyes because... Um, access is very restricted, but they say the whole underground is sort of this maze of bunkers for protection and these sorts of things that, you know, dictatorships tend to do. And um, there is a main square in the city that was meant to be this public space, the notion of public space, you know, coming from ancient Greece, the egalitarian space where people meet and greet and meet their leaders. And instead, even that's turned into... Um, 
military space for parade grounds uh, surrounded by barbed wire. So, oh wow, that's yeah. So that's the kind of things we see in places created by um, military juntas. It it yeah. I suppose when you <laughs> when you when you frame it like that and you 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 tell sort of the the history and the origin of where these places come from, it's it's really no surprise that they don't work for people on a day to day basis because. It's sort of ideology first rather than practical life Absolutely. first. Absolutely. And I mean, look at Canberra too, because I don't want to make it sound as if it's only the global south that uh, comes mm. up with these models, whereas the global north, you know, things are great and um, the global north is a role model. That's hardly the case. So um, if I can be a bit critical of the Australian situation as well, I think I can. I recently <laughs> became a citizen, so <laughs> now I'm allowed to criticize my own country. Um, but in Canberra, we see... Uh, the patriarchy reflected in the fact that the whole government district is quite separate from all the other city spaces. And to me, that sends this subtle message that the government is sort of on top of the people. Uh, there mm. is this huge parade grounds. It's hard to get from building to building where um, all the um, um, sort of representative spaces are and then to get to the suburbs where um, normal people live well including bureaucrats i mean um, people that work in government one needs to either walk for hours or drive mm. that's how canberra has been set up i guess uh, i mean i guess a a to, to play devil's advocate and sort of I suppose tease this out a bit also for for listeners who are maybe um hear the word feminism and think and get a little bit like defensive you know mm. for the men for the men that are listening who are thinking like is this are we getting blamed for everything is this i suppose how do you as a when you're researching this kind of thing <clears throat> how do you tease out whether something is is patriarchal or is it because of uh, a particular political ideology or or a military you know perspective or that kind of thing i suppose where do you it all comes down to my definition of a matriarchy, right? Let's um, look at it the other way around. What would mm. a matriarchal society be? So some people, when they hear the word, they think a matriarchy is a society where women are on top. So we just have a role <laughs> reversal. Um, men are treated the way women are treated now, and then women are kind of on top and barking orders at everyone. <laughs> to me, that's not a matriarchy, just that just a nightmare <laughs> or <laughs> a hellscape. <laughs> uh, to me, a matriarch is a situation where um, there is equality in society. There is equality between genders, all genders. And there is also economic equality because one cannot really have a perfect matriarchy the way I envision it if there are social inequalities there. I mean, if there are rich women at the top and poor men at the bottom, I don't see where the gain is. I see that mm. as um, just the patriarchy with another name. Mm. So I hope that clarifies things a bit about what, what I mean when I talk about the feminist city. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I can I, I can definitely understand that. And I think when when we've all been living within patriarchal societies for so long it's it can be difficult to actually see for what it is and recognize that there are all there are alternatives yeah absolutely yes and the alternatives i feel that 
we need to envision together in the future as opposed to having um, politicians sort of bully us into particular models or even designers kind of pushing pushing down particular visions that they might have. Uh, people need to get together and decide what society they need to live in, um, whether mm. the current societies, which I'm calling them patriarchies, are satisfactory, what have those done for us, or whether we need new models going towards the future. And um, same thing for the city. People need to get together and figure out together what the shape of the cities of the future should be. We shouldn't let, um, I already mentioned politicians, but we shouldn't let technology companies decide for us either. This is so relevant, I think, to to probably everywhere in the world. And I mean, I'm in the southeast of England here and I, you know, there's just so much development happening. You know, it's, it's you know, tens of thousands of homes um, being, you know, designed and built every year. <clears throat> and you know it's it isn't new cities in that sense, but what it is is often huge extensions to existing towns and villages um, and cities. And so, I imagine the same sort of issues apply when we don't include the uh, exi- and, and and in that situation, you already have an existing community that you should be dr- involving and drawing on. But so often, the model is still to have a master planner. And a master developer who is basically leading the whole process and will involve the community as little as possible because they're seen as a liability. Of course. And so in that case, um, instead of the government calling the shots or technology companies calling the shots, it seems like it's capital, pure and simple, that's making decisions on behalf of everyone else, making urban decisions so that practically means capital deciding how people should live yeah exactly and i think you know <clears throat> i think we really need to think about whether that is the best i mean people are are, are in many ways rightly uh worried about governments being too uh being too involved with design and, and development but equally are we are we comfortable with the market taking that role and deciding for us I like small communities to take um, a leading role in deciding what their area should look like. I'm not a big believer in big government. I'm not a big believer in a big market either. So that's that's the um, model, that's the radical model I have in mm. mind. Yeah, it, it's something that I, has been popping up a lot for me lately in in conversations I've been having on the podcast, but also in books I've been reading. Is is this sort of um, moving to a much more localized mindset? Um, because I think, and, and it'd be interesting to actually to, to see if you agree with this. But it seems like a lot of the um, urban design of new capitals and and other new cities around the world is driven has been driven by globalization. So North American and European models. Um, being exported to locations where they're just not, you know, it's just not uh, appropriate um, to do that. Um, and, you know, I see that a lot in, in the Middle East. I mean, somewhere like Saudi Arabia, there's just so much, um, huge amount of development, um, and it, it really doesn't look like uh, a tr- you know, traditional Arabian um, 
architecture or urbanism. I was just going to say that's a local, uh, that's a that's a real shame that um, a lot of heritage is being lost, right? Mm. North looks same as south, east looks the same as west. And we see that in buildings, but also we see that in people's clothes and food is becoming more and more globalized. So yeah. the spirit of place is getting is getting diluted. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I think, I hope there is a push towards taking a much more localized um, understanding of place. And uh, I think also designers and, and, and developers having more of a local, uh, having more of a stake in the local area, because it's quite easy just to design something from a hundred, you know, a thousand kilometers away. Uh, and you know, maybe you visit the site once and then you never show up again afterwards, <laughs> you know, that's not, not really how we should be designing places. Exactly. I mean, we should be designing places based on a person's, um, range of transport on foot or by bicycle. I see that as being the proof there. That's just about the range we can comprehend. We're, we're human. <laughs> Homo sapiens were small, and it's not as if we were meant to live in these enormous settlements with large-scale comprehensive planning. We were meant to live through in small tribes, and um, I don't think we've evolved past that, even though we pretend like we have. I mean, that's perhaps <laughs> why we keep creating such bad cities, large cities. I to totally agree with that. Um, let, let's talk about, I suppose, the relationship between maybe this sort of uh, patriarchal approach to urbanism and climate change. What, what's the, the interplay of that? Well, in the new capital cities that I studied, I saw that this theme of trying to tame and dominate wild nature was a constant. So the new capitals were created in these most inhospitable spaces and places like Nur Sultan, the, the capital of Kazakhstan I mentioned earlier, was created in the steppe, in the arid steppe of Asia, uh, with very, very cold temperatures in winter. It never uh, goes above freezing in winter. In fact, the average high, I think, is minus 10 or 11. Wow. Uh, so I ask, why should we be putting a new city <laughs> in that kind of natural environment. I mean, that's that's not a place that fosters human well-being. In fact, not too far from where the new capital was created were the Soviet gulags, where people mm. um, used to live, you know, unfenced prisons, but unfenced because it was so cold, no one could escape and wow. go anywhere. Then we have two cases located in savanna environments, um, the capital of um, Nigeria, Abuja, and the capital of Brazil, Brasilia. They were created in, on virgin land in the savanna, the African savanna and the Brazilian savanna. So why do we need to attack nature in that manner? And in mm -hmm. the case of Brasilia, because the government wanted to build the city very quickly, they wanted to get it done in five years while the president that created uh, the city push for the patron was, was in power. Mm -hmm. So what they did was instead of trying to integrate nature and building, they just cleared the whole site. They Oof. 
cut all the trees that were there. And then once the city was built, they brought in new trees to be planted. But a lot of new trees weren't even savanna type of trees. They brought them from Rio um, de Janeiro mm. because that's where most nurseries were. I mean, that was in Sao Paulo. Those are both um, tropical, subtropical kind of environments, so just completely new vegetation. Then we have the case of um, Nepido in Myanmar, in the middle of the jungle, just clearing the jungle to build these big highways. Um, concrete, a lot of concrete in this new city. They even moved, so in Nepido, they even moved the zoo animals from the old capital Yangon. Uh, so the animals were moved, were made to transfer to the new capital. And that includes, oddly enough, penguins. So oh, now they've got penguins in the jungle. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, maybe I should have called the, the book, I should have given it the title, Penguins in the Jungle. <laughs> <laughs> the absurdity. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. And 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 yeah, what what sort of timescales are, are are a lot of the capitals you studied in the sort of modernist um modernist time frame? Because I imagine that is a very that sort of you know concrete of nature is is it seems like a modernist perspective as well. Yeah, absolutely. No, modernist modernism as a movement has a lot to answer. Um mm. For and yes, on purpose, I picked new capitals that were built in the 20th and 21st centuries because that's when we see these uh, greater disasters. Capitals that were created earlier um, are less arrogant, perhaps, in their dealings with nature. Mm. There was more of an effort to integrate with nature, uh, create designs that were more organic, partly because the technology was lacking to attack nature at um, mm. such a large scale we later saw in the 20th, 20th and 21st centuries. Yeah, Because even, even now, I think when we, we there's an understanding from from designers that they they need to take a more ecological approach um and at least need to be seen to be creating places that are very green and 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 integrate uh you know with the surrounding natural environment but i i'm sort of i'm very skeptical of how much of that is greenwashing and how much of it is actually well thought through um and i come back to the the cgis i've seen of the um the new capital of indonesia um, which you know very well may just be concept concept drawings, um, but they sort of show this idea of a city that's just nestled into the rainforest and you know barely barely making an impact at all. But actually, I'm, I'm I just don't see how you can have that much concrete and that much uh, hard paving uh, and everything without having just a, a really destructive um, impact on on local ecology. So. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I mean, think of all the underground infrastructure that will be put in place as well. So all the sewer lines and electricity lines and all of that stuff. So the jungle will be affected, not just the surface level, but the underground level. So all the water that's underground might um, end up polluted if things aren't done right. And then think also of the above ground. So what air pollution 
all all the new construction mm. costs, yeah. and then even the visual pollution. I mean, new cities always have these overhead wires um, going on, so we'll have that um, in the visuals of the jungle. So that alone tells you that um, the impact will be will be huge. But let me tell you about the case of uh, South Korea because that's already done. I mean, for, when it comes to the new capital of um, Indonesia, um, we're speculating to some extent because it hasn't happened yet. Um, But um, Sejong is already there. And that was created as a prototype of a U-Echo city. That's a Mm. Korean concept. U U stands for ubiquitous. And um, a ubiquitous city is the ultimate smart city right Mm. where the internet of things everything is connected your phone is connected to your garbage collection and your fridge talks to your tv and you know all of that um, (laughs) stuff so after um that was decided and new capital was going to be a ubiquitous city uh, partly as a promotion um for the korean uh, it industry i mean we know the nation is strong on that is a uh, world leader. Mm-hmm. So um, there was sort of a cooperation between that industry and city building. Then um, the appellate um, green city was sort of added on, which connects to what you're saying about greenwashing. But in the end, a lot of um, the new city development was about economic development that came first mm-hmm. and then the eco-credentials um, were sort of tacked on later to make this an appealing concept this new city may make make it appealing in um, the 21st century interesting interesting yeah it, it does often feel like a an additional <laughs> additional layer afterwards I've, I've been reading a book that um has been really interesting it's called uh, Darwin comes to town. Um, oh. How how urban? I think it's how cities drive evolution, or or how urban places drive evolution. And it's it's an ecologist biologist who talks about the ways that species who have been able to live and thrive in cities have actually faced such evolutionary pressure in that new environment that that many of them have literally changed and and literally evolved in a very short time period. Um, is really really interesting, and, and he makes the argument that cities are, of course, not the same ecosystem of the surrounding, you know, countryside, but they're also not one type of ecosystem. They're more like an archipelago of different ecosystems. And he says that, um, you know, particular parks. So in London, we have these large, you know, royal royal parks, and and you know, a large park in itself is one type of ecosystem, which for which the species that live there will be um, adapted to an extent that will be genetically different to another large park that may only be 10 miles away or something like that. Uh, And then you have all the little spaces in between. So for instance, little pockets of green along railway tracks actually can be quite biodiverse. But again, it's a very specific uh, type of ecosystem that only particular species will be uh, predisposed to live there. Um, and it really opened my eyes to the idea that, you know, I think, first of all, I think urban designers, planners, architects don't get the training or enough training in ecology to really understand these things. Um, and it's something that I'm only now exploring. 
Um, but, but also the fact that, you know, we need to consider all the other living things that make a home in cities that aren't humans and consider, you know, not only what they can do for us, of which, which is a lot, but also just how can we, you know, give them a good home as well with, within cities. That's so true. And also it's about how to make cities as compact as possible. So we're not interfering too much with their habitats outside of cities. Because, yeah. I mean, I do understand the point that all kinds of creatures, perhaps including us, evolve living in the city, learn to cope with noise and pollution and high speeds and visual interference yeah. and all of that. But the ideal is to let other species do their thing in the wilderness rather than us going and interfering with their habitats and hoping that they'll <laughs> evolve to, <laughs> to accommodate our needs, right? But no, it's true that ecology needs to become a much bigger part of urban planning, even in the way we train our students. And often I get asked um, when we have open days at my university here in Australia, you know, um, high school seniors come in and their parents and they ask me, well, what is urban planning all about? Because they're deciding what mm. they want to study in the future. And I tell them, urban planning is about everything because cities... <laughs> are about everything. And that includes other animals in addition to humans. That is so true. So true. It's an endless list of the things that planners need to think about. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so we, we, I guess we've been, you've talked a little bit about um, what might be a kind of alternative approach. Um, how do you, which would be maybe a more matriarchal approach um, to urbanism. Um, it seems like so much of how we design is is wrapped up in our uh, the systems of society, our political systems within capitalism. I suppose. What? How do you see a way forward for maybe bridging to a more uh, matriarchal, equal, ecological sort of urbanism? It seems like a very, <laughs> a very tough journey. To, I think to get there. It's a tough journey for sure, and I don't see how urban planning alone could be the fix. I feel like we need to change our societies towards um, more equality before urban planning can reflect that equality. Um, that's, that's what I see as a first step. If we wanted to take just some immediate steps to help women as these longer-term processes happen, well, we need to make cities more convenient for women to navigate, and we need to make them safer for women to navigate. We need to also improve our economic system so that um, women have access to all kinds of employment, including professions that work close to them in the future. And once they enter those professions, make sure that they're uh, paid the same way as men because then that changes uh, women's outcomes in the city. You know, if women aren't paid enough, then they won't have access to good enough housing for themselves and their families. They won't have access to good enough transport or even good enough sanitation, those basic things that human beings need to thrive. Mm. So it's a, it's, yeah, it's a perspective shift and a, 
ideology shift that comes first and maybe the the urban form will follow yes that's how i see it so there's there's a final question that i always ask guests basically i i, I we're in this sort of critical decade in terms of taking action on on climate change um so i always want to get the perspective of guests of over the next 10 years or so from your perspective what do you think needs to happen and it may be that you've already answered <laughs> parts of this but it's always nice to get a chance to to reiterate well look in the past these kind of moves like feminism or even environmentalism itself there were sort of fringe movements right it was only certain people that embraced them and i see them as a combination by the way um i myself consider um uh, consider myself to be an eco-feminist, so uh, someone who cares both about gender equality and the environment. Um, I think both are both are important in achieving a more just future. But in the past, both these movements were sort of fringe movements. It was mm. only kind of the hippies that um, were involved. And in the future, we simply cannot continue in that way, um, all of these fringe movements now need to become not just mainstream, but the most important movements in our society to improve our governance systems and our cities. There is no time anymore for sort of seesaw approaches and saying that oh, things will be okay, we always managed to get out of the woods in the past. Um, no, we won't if we don't do something about it now. Excellent, excellent. I think that's a great final word. Um, where can people find out more about you and your book? Um, the best place is probably my university profile um if you visit that there are links to everything that i've written